Well, good morning. Before we look to God's Word, let's pause and we'll pray. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your Word and the opportunity we have to gather here to hear it proclaimed. And so, Lord, we just pray that in these moments we would hear your voice, that you would speak to your people who are gathered here, and that we would come away from these moments impacted and changed because you have met with your people this day. So bless us in these sacred moments. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. It is good to be sharing with you today. I am thankful for each and every one of you. I know we've got people who are away. I know we've got people watching online. Uh, but I am thankful that you've taken the time this week to come and gather with the church here at Northridge and to, uh, to join us as we seek to worship our Heavenly Father, this day. Today, I have the privilege, and I count it such, to advance our story in leaps and bounds, <laughs> as has been the custom over the last little bit. We are working our way through the entirety of Scripture as we understand it, highlighting the fact that Scripture is a unified story. That even though it's divided up in books and sections and spans thousands of years, the reality is it tells a story, one story, of who Jesus Christ is and why he came. We've made wonderful progress so far. You'll recall, we'll do a quick review, okay? We started Adam and Eve in the garden. And everything was good. And then we learned how sin entered the world, how people got in trouble because of sin. And then we saw and explored Abraham and his relationship with God and how God made a covenant with him that he would bless the people who seek to live to please God. And in fact, the whole world would be blessed because of Abraham. We moved along. We saw how Moses rescued the Israelites from captivity in Egypt how he led them into the wilderness where God gave them the law. Remember that? How God commanded that they set aside a special place for his presence to dwell with the people, the tabernacle. We looked at that and what that meant. We saw last week from the book of Judges how the Israelites got caught in this terrible uh, serial cycle, if you were here and you remember, the serial cycle of Nathan. Ask him about it. But it's this cycle, you know, where they live according to God's will and everything is okay. And then they get comfortable as a people and they forget God. And they forget to live to please God. And so God raises up another nation to, to take them over, to, uh, to conquer them. And then they become enslaved or persecuted. And then they remember that they're supposed to be God's people. And they cry out to him and God raises up a judge or a leader, a prophet, to call them back to right relationship with God. And then God rescues them from their captors or, or from their persecutors. And then they get comfortable living in God's presence and then they forget about him. And the cycle continues and continues. And this happens seven times throughout the book of Judges. And so this entire narrative that we've come through so far You'll recognize that as diverse as the stories are, as removed perhaps as they may seem on the surface from one another, they actually have one unified theme that runs through them. 
in all these stories, humanity is trying to reunite in right relationship with God the Father. That's what they're trying to do, and we keep messing it up is how it works, trying to repair that broken relationship with God. All the stories we've worked through and more besides, that's what's going on. Ever since the fall where sin entered the world and sort of created that separation between holy and perfect creator and creation, ever since that separate separation because of sin, we've been trying to fix that peace. And we're going to continue to see that this week and into the next, next week, Jesus comes into the picture. And God says, you know what, enough of you trying to fix this. I got it. But that's for next week. Cliffhanger, you have to come back next week. Now we pick up the story with David, though. And I want to give you some history because, again, there's a bit of a gap between where we left Judges and where David comes onto the scene here. Israel's working through this cycle of, you know, raising leaders and failing to follow God. And after these cycles, the people begin to complain and they say, something needs to change. It only took seven times, but the people recognize that something needs to change. And instead of looking in the mirror, they say, well, we need a king. That's what needs to be different. And at this point, we're introduced to a prophet named Samuel. He's the judge at the time. He's got his own unique calling into that position. And I invite you to read all about that in the book of 1 Samuel. Uh, the people look to Samuel as their leader and they say, you know why we keep getting taken over? It's not because we forget God and turn from his ways. That can't be it. We can't take responsibility. All the other nations, they have kings. That's the difference between us and them. They have kings. And so they ask Samuel, they say, give us a king. If we had a king, the other nations wouldn't take us over because they'd be afraid of us. Here it is from 1 Samuel chapter 8 and verse 6. When they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. And so he prayed to the Lord and the Lord told him, this is the response of God to his people. He says, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It's not you that they have rejected, but they have rejected me, God says, as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you now, Samuel. Now listen to them. But warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Now think about this for a moment, if you will. Up until this point, Israel, oh, you can't see the words. PowerPoint. <laughs> it's supposed to say God on the top. It's the organizational chart. God on top. Then there's a prophet in the middle, and then there's everybody else on the bottom. So in God's organizational chart, that's how it works. He's on top. There is a prophet who communes between God and the people, a spokesman. And then there's everybody else on an even playing field. And that's God's organizational chart. And so up until this point, Israel had existed 
under this kind of structure. People who relied on God as their ruler, as their king. God would raise up a prophet, a leader who would, he would speak through, who he would direct the people through. But it was certainly God's people and his care and his kingship. But now the people want a fundamental shift in what God had ordained. And even though it's not in their best interest, the people are insistent. And so God says to Samuel, fine, I will give them a king. Now, I don't often do homework here from the pulpit, but I can't express just how broad this context is. There's so much that happens between the time of the judges and where David comes in. And so I'm going to invite you. We're not there in our version plan yet. We're going to get there. But as we do, you can make note of it and be like, oh, that's what Fred was talking about. Or, even better, you can take some time and read through First and Second Samuel in advance of that. Because there's so much uh, in there that I would love to share. But... For right now, we're going to forge ahead to the reign of King David. Now, the prophet Nathan, by this time, is a new prophet. Samuel's gone, and Nathan is the prophet that God raises up. He's sent out, and he finds David in the shepherding town of Bethlehem. It would become known as David's town or the town of David, simply because of who David grew to be and the role that he took And Nathan goes out and he declares David as the anointed one, the one who will be king over Israel. And so years later, time passes. There's a whole bunch of stuff that happens to David. David and Goliath. Saul sort of loses his mind and tries to kill David because of jealousy. Again, you've got to read all this stuff because it's so good. First and second Samuel. Okay? Okay. And then finally David becomes king and ascends to the throne. And he seeks to reinstitute the kind of reign that pleases God. One that is in line with Scripture and how God is calling the people to live. And there's a difference from how they were living. And so he calls everyone back. And even though he sits in the chair as king, he very much seeks God's heart and God's desire for his people. That's why he would become known as one who was after God's own heart. David goes and he drives the Jebusites, drives the Jebusites, who are the people who are living in Jerusalem, drives them out of Jerusalem, takes over the city again, and institutes his kingdom, and he's going to reign from Jerusalem. And then he goes on a campaign to drive out all those other nations that Joshua and the Israelites didn't, Way back when they were coming into the promised land, David goes to drive those people out and basically get rid of anyone who is causing trouble to the Israelite nation. And God blesses David and blesses his rule. And you can read all about this in chapter 8 of 2 Samuel. It details all the victories that David has as he rises and as he reigns from the throne. But very early in the outset of David's reign, something remarkable happens. God uses the prophet Nathan and he declares, he promises David that he will be successful. That he will be a prosperous ruler of God's people. 
that God will be with David wherever he goes and in fact has already been with him wherever he has gone. He says, I will make your name great among the entire world because of your rule. Moreover, God proclaims that a time of peace will exist for David and the Israelites during his reign so that they can rest from their enemies. What a great promise to hear. Hey, imagine you're sitting on the throne. You're the king or the queen. You find yourself there. You're, you're ruling a nation. And God says, you will be blessed as you sit in this chair. As you sit on the throne, you're going to be blessed. And you are going to have victory when you need victory. So much so that your name will be great, will be remembered forever. And not only that, when the time is right, you'll be able to sit on the throne in peace. Nations won't attack. You can rest and enjoy the simple blessings of God. How great would that be? How great it was for David. But it gets even better than that. Because remember now, in context and in culture, and we've looked at some of this as we've gone over these past number of weeks, one of the things that's really important is a legacy, an ancestry, descendants. It matters. It's why the Bible outlines all the genealogies, you know, in different sections as we've gone through. Because it's so important. And ever since the covenant with Abraham, God has shown his blessing by raising up generations of offspring. I mean, even now, today, the Jews still call themselves sons and daughters of Abraham, right? Because genealogy matters. And descendants matter. And so God concludes this promise to David with a special blessing, a prophetic message for King David. From 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 11. Furthermore, the Lord declares that he will make a house for you, a dynasty of kings. For when you die and are buried with your ancestors, I will raise up one of your descendants, your own offspring, and I will make his kingdom strong. He is the one who will build a house, a temple for my name, and I will secure his royal throne forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. If he sins, I will correct and discipline him with a rod like any father would do. But my favor will not be taken from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from your sight. Your house and your kingdom will continue before me for all time, and your throne will be secure forever. Now, come with me here. Because this promise from God, this little section, is just thick with prophecy and layers. And at first we might read, okay, he's talking about Solomon. We know that Solomon, Dave's, David's son, who would build a temple, who had an illustrious reign, who was successful and rich and powerful, we see that, and we know that Solomon built the temple. But this promise turns into something else as it goes through. It's the promise of an everlasting kingdom. One that's not built by human hands, but one that's instituted by God himself. 
I will make his kingdom strong, God says. I will be his father, and he will be my son. Your house and your kingdom will continue before me for all time, and your throne will be secure forever. Now, as I think about what this means, I'm drawn to a couple of passages. The first from Isaiah chapter 9. For a child is born to us, a son is given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. Okay. Now, if you're still wondering who that might be, I want to make it really clear. Luke chapter 1 and verse 30. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. It's Jesus. See, a thousand years separated Jesus from this promise to David. But God blessed the king with a glimpse of how he was working through the ages. Gave him a glimpse of that unified story of who Jesus is and what he would do. And we can lose this reality sometimes as we spend time in the Old Testament. We can get caught up in the amazing stories of kings and battles and conquests. And we can get lost in the nefarious activities sometimes of those who've fallen short of God's glory. And we can forget that God is working there. And two, we can forget sometimes that God is working in our lives as we get stuck in the midst of our daily lives, of encounters we have, of circumstances we find ourselves in, of challenges that we go through, of persecution maybe that we experience. And we forget. We lose sight of the fact that God is working. But when we encounter passages like this, that we can read with sort of the blessing of, of hindsight, being able to call that God's words were spoken throughout generations, we look and say, yep, we can see that God was working there. I can know that God is working here. He was writing this unified story throughout history. And it's a story of his work to repair the damage caused by sin. And in David's story, God reveals the ultimate ending of this separation. It is the perfect reuniting of humanity and God. In Matthew 21 and 9, the triumphant entry, we read, Hosanna to the son of David. Jesus enters Jerusalem and the people gather and they say, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And in the same way, we give our praise and glory to God today. For Jesus, our Savior, our Redeemer, our Rescuer, we give God praise because he restores what sin has broken. 
Jesus restores brokenness. And I think sometimes the takeaway in David's story, and we, as we study or as we look, we take away that, yeah, David was a man after God's own heart. Why was he counted that? It's not because he was perfect or flawless. He certainly made mistakes. But when he messed things up, he went to God. And what's interesting is so many of us do the complete opposite, hey? We just sort of dig the hole deeper. We mess up. We fall short and recognize we do, and we think, oh, I can't go to God. Not yet. i got to fix it. It's the human response. The Israelites have been doing it for years up to this point. Right? I can do it myself. I can fix it. I, gotta, I just got to get cleaned up first, and then I'll come back to God. Or I got to quit smoking, or I got to quit drinking, or I've got to quit this or do that. Or I've got to start going to church, or I need to start reading my Bible first. Or I've got to do all these things first before we turn to God. And that's completely opposite to how God ordains it to be. We find ourselves caught in this cycle, this spiral. And so we stay away and we choose to pursue other things that draw us from God or distract us from what needs to happen. And we sort of construct a barrier, a wall almost. But see, when David messed up, and as you read the story, you'll recognize he messed up. He turned to God genuinely and sincerely, openly and honestly. And God met David and forgave him and ministered to his heart because that's who God is. He is gracious and compassionate, and he is ready to forgive. The psalmist writes, Psalm 51, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right and steadfast within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me, but restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. That's what David said when he messed up. He goes on to say in just a few verses later, My only sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, broken with sorrow for sin, thoroughly penitent. Such, O God, you will not despise. And for us today, because of Jesus, because of this promise gave, given to David as one who will rule forever and who we know Jesus to be, we have the ability to openly and honestly be, come before him and ask for forgiveness. And it is a wonderful promise and a wonderful reality for God's people. I want to invite the worship team to join me. And as they come, I want to share this quote from Eugene Peterson's book, Leap Over a Wall. He says, The Christian life starts at the other end, not with us, but with God. What is God doing that I can respond to? How is God expressing his love and grace so that I can live appreciatively and in obedience? This is why the David story, he says, continues to prove so useful. It doesn't show us how we should live, 
but it shows us how we do live. And how in that living, if we keep our eyes open, if we stay honest, avoid pretense, we encounter God alive. God in covenant with us. And God pulling the best out of us. We find ourselves at levels of aliveness that we didn't know existed. Dimensions of passion that we thought were left behind. A willingness to venture and risk that which puts electricity into the world. By taking the David story seriously, he says, we find that we're taking our own stories seriously. Realizing just how God-shaped, God-influenced, God-graced our lives truly are. See, David's story and David's promise, they reveal to us, they help us to understand how truly blessed we are to know God the Son, Jesus Christ. And it all begins with him. He is our living hope. You hear the tune. We're going to sing it in just a moment. But I want to offer that if you're here today and you don't know this Son of God that we talk about, if you find yourself recognizing that you've fallen short, maybe you're caught in that spiral. Maybe you're here today and you think, you know what, I, I feel the need that I need to come to God. I need to experience His forgiveness. But first, I got to do this. If that's you, I want you to hear the word of the Lord this morning that says that's not how it works. You come to me and I'll help you fix that other stuff. You can't clean yourself. Come to me. I can clean you because of who Jesus is. This wonderful promise to David has been fulfilled and is fulfilled for us. And so today, if you're here and you need to know Jesus as your living hope, this is an opportunity to do that as we sing. If you want to pray, there's a, a, a space just out here in this fireside room where people can come and pray with you. It's private. It's sacred. We set it aside as holy ground for God to meet with his people. And so if you want to pray, you can do that. If you want to wait till after and pray, you can do that. But I just... In my heart, I pray that there would be freedom here today for God's Spirit to move however He desires. That as He calls us to Himself, that we would be responsive and that we would be submissive to His voice. For indeed, He is our living hope. Will you pray with me? Maybe let's stand and we'll pray together. Father, as we pause this day, we give you great thanks for the promises that we know that have been fulfilled in our lives. For the opportunities we have to, to come before you, to seek your forgiveness, and to be filled with your Spirit. And so God, I pray for those who would hear my voice today, that it wouldn't be my voice, but it would be, it would be yours, God. And that you would draw each and every one closer. And whatever the needs that exist here, God, whatever brokenness that is found in our lives, we proclaim and know Jesus to be the one who restores. 
who makes right and who calls us to be fit and equips us to be fit to be found in your presence. So God, we dedicate this time to you and we pray that as we share together in song that your spirit would move and that we would meet you here in this place. So be with us, God. Speak clearly to your people, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.